greetings in Jesus' name. May grace and peace be multiplied to each one of you through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who rose from the grave and lives on high. The Apostle Paul, in his exhortation and admonitions to the Thessalonians, he told his uh, audience, which was sent by letter here in 1 Thessalonians, he said, Ye are all the children of light. Ye are all the children of light. And that's the title for my message this morning. It was in the context of speaking to them of the end times. And I would like to read that portion in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Ye are all the children of light. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith, and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, and edify one another, even as also ye do. I will stop reading uh, there. Now the context here, just prior to this chapter, Paul had given them uh, some of the details of the coming of the Lord in what we call the rapture, there in verse 13 through 18 of chapter 4 where he talked about the, um, the Lord descending from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and of the resurrection of the just. And then following that, he says these words, Of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh, as a thief in the night. 
And in another place, it tells us that Paul often spoke to the believers about these matters. And some of the things he said were difficult to understand, according to Peter. But here Paul, in addressing them, says, Ye have no need that I write unto you, because ye know perfectly. And I think he was simply reminding them of the many things that he had already told them and what they had been instructed in concerning the coming of the Lord. But he adds a few more details here, or perhaps reminds them again. It says, When they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So I'd like to talk about that issue of the children of light being able to see and to know some of the details about the coming of the Lord such that that day, as Paul says, should not overtake us as a thief. Now, when Jesus used that term about uh, coming like a thief in the night, and, and when it says here, Paul says, you know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night, he makes it plain that he's actually talking about the world and the people of the world who know nothing or they don't know God and are not looking for his return or his coming. To them, it will come like a thief in the night. But for believers who know the scriptures, who do know their God, to them it should not overtake us as a thief because we are able to see. We are children of the light. Now, I believe it's evident that the coming of the Lord is drawing nigh. And it, the closer it comes, the more we should exhort and comfort one another in the knowledge that God is working out his plan and that nothing is taking him by surprise. And that even many of the things that we see happening were in fact predicted to take place before his return. And they are signs and evidence that it's coming near, near at hand. Now perhaps you have heard and, and others have, and I have, and of... Uh, Preachers emphasizing the coming of the Lord as a thief in the night and therefore you don't know what hour he's coming so get ready. And there's a certain amount of truth in that in that we should be ready at all times because we know not the day of our uh, calling. We don't know when we'll be called home. It may be in a moment. And... 
We have evidence all around us of people passing from this life into eternity. And so, none of us have a promise that we will remain and be alive yet when the Lord comes back. So, it is quite important for us to be ready at all times. However, when it comes to the actual matter of the Lord coming back to this earth, there are things that he tells us will come to pass prior to that, and there are signs and evidences leading up to it by which we can know and tell when it's drawing near. For example, several places, um, Matthew 24, 33, Jesus uses this phrase, know that it is near even at the door. When you see these things happen, then know that it's near. In Luke 21, 28, and when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Now we may look in more uh, particular matter there of what he's referring to, but what I'm emphasizing here is simply his, his use of language and phraseology there that we can know. There are evidences that come to pass, and when they do, we should lift up our heads and realize that our redemption is drawing nigh. I'd like to read another passage in Matthew chapter 24. You would turn there. And reading verse 36 through 44. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, and one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Now, at first reading here, it would sound like we shouldn't be too concerned, perhaps, about the details, because no man knows. But the thrust of the passage here is that we should... Therefore, be watching. 
It doesn't mean that we can just push it aside and neglect the topic because just, well, no man knows, and so we just kind of go on with life and, and deal with the more important matters, our um, day-to-day affairs. And but I think that would be a mistake because as the time draws near, there are going to be more and more distressing things that come upon us. And unless we have our mind set to watch and wait for the Lord's coming, we might become over-troubled and distressed about the things that are happening. The Lord in all his... uh, in his word, through his own speaking there when he was here, and through the epistles, and even through the prophets of old, told us many things about the end times and what it would be like in the end of days. And what I would like to emphasize this morning is a bit of the, what would you say, the the atmosphere or or the general thinking of people. It says clearly in our text there in 1 Thessalonians that the day of the Lord will come as a thief, and then it clarifies by saying, they shall say, peace and safety. Then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child. Now, that, uh, that picture of travail is speaking of birth pangs, and that is used a number of times in the scriptures, both in the prophets of old and in Christ's words and in the epistles, that prior to the coming of the Lord would be likened unto the birth pangs of a woman when she gives child. Well, if you just think about that, That doesn't come until the very end. Oh, there might be, you know, as it gets closer, starts in with some very mild contractions, and but it's not until the very end that things get very, very uh, strong and severe. Well, so it would be at the coming of the Lord. Things are going to escalate at the very end and will get much more intense. So that's one thing we can expect. However, while that is happening, and the people of God should be expecting it, should be vigilant, should be watching, and should be discerning what's happening, at the same time, the world will be in darkness, and they will be asleep. They will be asleep on their watch, as it were. They will be taken by surprise. Even though they see these very same birth pangs coming to pass, they will be like it was in the days of Noah. They will eat and drink. They will plant and build. They will marry and give in marriage as though nothing is different. And yet, at the same time, everything is different. But to them, it's just, 
well, it's just part of life and, and we need to get through this and, and yet they will not turn to God and know not until the day, as it says here, as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Now, if we go back and look at that account, it would indicate that Noah went into the ark and the door was shut about seven days prior to the rain coming. Now what happened in that interval, we don't really know. But I'm sure in the minds of some, when that door was shut, it perhaps began to dawn on them that they should have taken heed. And Jesus makes it plain further that at his coming, when the goodman of the house comes and invites his people in and then shuts to the door, he says, and ye begin to stand without and say, Lord, Lord, open unto us. I believe that is going to be a reality in the day of the Lord where there is a time where there can be repentance, there can be a turning to the Lord, and then the good men of the house will rise up and shut to the door. And that day of opportunity is gone. Those that are in are in. And those that are not ready will not enter in. That sobering reality should be with us in a sense at all times because Again, we know not the day of our parting. Now let's turn to the book of Luke where he repeats some of these things in chapter 21. Let's just pick out a few things out of this passage. Luke 21, uh, beginning in verse 10. Then said he unto them, Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and great earthquakes shall be in diverse places, and famines, and pestilences, and fearful sights, and great signs shall there be from heaven. But before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, and so on. And he speaks more about that, but down in verse 19, he says, In your patience possess ye your souls. And I'd like to emphasize that is a very important part of our thinking in the end time. In your patience possess ye your souls. In another place he says that ye are like unto uh, servants who wait for their Lord 
and he uses the word patience in one of those passages. He said, unto the patient waiting of the coming of the Lord. And what does it mean about a patient waiting? Well, the sense here of patience should be that you wait with some expectation. Not with the sense necessarily of disappointment, as we might think of patience. Well, we wish something would happen, and well, it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen, and we would be tempted to complain, uh, but we just need to be patient. Well, there might be a sense of that, but the patience that Job had was in the midst of his trials, he still honored God, and he recognized God, and he had deep within him a settled assurance that God was going to see him through. And that even if he perished, yet he was going to see God. There was that abiding faith and patience deep within that enabled him to walk through the day-by-day realities. Now that doesn't mean that Job felt good all the time or that he was even happy all the time because he struggled greatly. If you read the the book, there was times when he really wrestled with thoughts in his mind and perhaps even fears, but he kept coming back to this reality that God is going to see him through. God is the righteous judge. God will do what is right. God will not forget his people. And his uh, miserable counselors and friends, you know, with friends like that, as the saying goes, who needs enemies? They, you know, they heaped upon him uh, blame and they were sure that he must have sinned, he must have done something terrible in the sight of God. And yet, in all this, Job maintained his integrity. He didn't lose heart and he didn't lose hope, even when it looked dark. And in the New Testament, we are urged to follow his example. And so here when Jesus says, In your patience possess ye your souls, it's not just a resigned, oh, I'm not getting what I want, maybe someday, but it is a deep abiding hope and a confidence that God will see us through. That is what is needed in the end time. Because even though we've been given details, we don't know it all clearly. And there are some uncertainties and things that, uh, that will come upon us that we aren't, didn't really think about. Now here in our uh, passage we were reading here, Luke 21, I'd like to read further. In verse 20, And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. 
again, one of those signs of time. Then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And there shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations, with perplexity the sea and the waves roaring. Men's hearts failing them for fear, and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. Okay, so here he gives some, uh, some details about what we should expect in the end time. And I would like to just make that a bit practical this morning in some of the things that we see coming to pass. For example, today we hear a lot about climate change. And men's hearts are becoming fearful that we are about to enter into some catastrophic changes on the earth because the climate is getting out of control. And therefore, they say, since man is causing this, we need to take some drastic measures. And there's, you know, people in high places are talking about these things and, and sounding the alarm. And so when you have things like happened, what is it, a week ago, last weekend when there was that heat in the Pacific Northwest where it started out by setting a record, a record high temperature, and then went up from there for the next several days. It was unprecedented and alarming to many. Not only was it distressing in its own way at the time and those people there, but the fear that it generates about these types of things. Is this going to be the new normal? Is this what we're going to expect from here on out? And those kind of questions, and there are some that would assure that yes, because of man's of pollutions of the atmosphere, these things are going to get worse. Well, there's been, in the last years, there have been storms, catastrophic storms that do enormous damage. In the past year, uh, in last year, and again this year, and throughout, there's been plagues of locusts over in the Middle East, in uh, East Africa and so on, 
There have been tremendous plagues of locusts, and I'm hearing reports that even in the western United States, where there are uh, areas of extreme drought, such as eastern Oregon, and even as far as eastern Montana, and even Nebraska, and so on, they are seeing swarms and clouds of grasshoppers large enough to be seen on radar. And when they move in, they just devour everything. It's almost reminiscent of the old-time pioneer days. You read the story of uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder and their accounts of locusts just coming in and wiping out the crops. I don't know if we'll see it that severe or not, but it is more severe than it has been in decades. There's reports of parts of Australia being overrun with mice and just a plague of mice that is, uh, well, again, when you read that, it says it's the worst in 30 years. And then I'm thinking to myself, oh, so it was like this 30 years ago or perhaps prior. So maybe this isn't new after all. But you know, I think that is going to be a reality in the last times where these catastrophic things are increasing and it is sounding an alarm and is setting men's hearts to fear. But at the same time, you can point back to some prior point in history where it was almost as bad, if not as bad. And therefore, there's also many that will say, well, this is nothing new. It's just a little bit different. And yeah, it's worse than it's been in 30 years, but, you know, nothing seriously happened back then. We got over it. And so all things will continue as they were from the beginning. Where, where is the sign of his coming anyway? Really? And it, it's the term I've used before is the plausible deniability. It's plausible to deny that this is anything really that we should be seeing as a sign. It's just, you know, it's been this way before. Now, I believe as children of God who read the scriptures and understand them, we know that some of these things are signs of his coming. Not necessarily that each individual event by itself is a, is a um, what would you say, a very um, compelling sign. But when you begin to put them together and see the big picture, you realize that a lot of the things that are going on are not things that we have seen before. Now, we read this verse here, and I'd like to look at it in more detail. In verse 26, well, let's read 25 as well. There shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity the sea and the waves roaring. Now this distress of nations, we see that happening 
And as the days go by, it seems it's getting worse. Perplexity, the sea and the sea there uh, in Scripture is sometimes used as a type of humanity, just all mankind in general. The sea and the waves roaring, meaning there's agitation, there's distresses, be it protests, uh, people, large people groups of movement and distress, such as those displaced by war and those uh, gathering and rioting or large protests by the hundreds of thousands in some cases. Men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Now that term there, the powers of heaven, could be taken several ways as this word power and and the term powers of heaven. It could be referring to things like the sun and the moon and those things that govern the seasons, as it says here in the prior verse, signs in the sun, moon, and in the stars. It could also Sometimes the use of the word heavens there is referring to the closer air as in the atmosphere of the earth. And if the powers that be in heaven, which whether it be the sun, moon, or or the atmosphere and its changes, it says shall be shaken. So when Christ talks about Earthquakes, famines, famines are usually a result of some weather patterns or changes where crops don't grow in certain regions because of a changing weather pattern or perhaps plagues of locusts or some such thing. And and as they study the life cycle of locusts, they realize that a very dry climate is conducive to many locusts, and therefore the drought is resulting in a plague of locusts and so on. So it's all tied in to climate and climate change. So men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And I would take that in a bit broader sense than just the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light. I would include there things like weather patterns. And that seems to be a major topic these days, climate change. Well, as people of God, we can understand that according to the scriptures, some of these things are going to be shaken up. There's going to be changes and things different, even perhaps supernatural, and things that are just out of the ordinary that cause famines or plagues, perhaps pestilences. And so when you have things like last summer where there was the extreme fires in the West and the cry went up that it's due to climate change. It's getting hotter, and therefore we can expect uh, worse fires and, 
and then the heat wave this summer, and you throw in the locusts and the pestilences, and, and then there was this uh, apartment condominium building that collapsed in Florida and great loss of life, and some even claiming that that is due to climate change. Well, I'm guessing it had more to do with engineering and maybe just neglect of maintenance or whatever, but we need to understand that from the world's perspective, when the atmosphere and the atmospheric changes, weather patterns are changing, they're fearful and they are groping for answers. And some have concluded that it's man's activity and the pollution of the atmosphere and therefore you need to reduce your level of use of electricity and you should not be driving so much and, and on and on it goes. You know, shut down the power plants, don't use coal, don't use any fossil fuels and we might be able to save the planet and even save humanity. Well, that's sadly misdirected for the most part in that uh, God is ultimately in control of the weather patterns and the science really isn't settled that man's activity is actually causing all these changes. But further, it tells us plainly in Hebrews and quoting from the Old Testament Psalms that uh, the earth and the heavens are waxing old and they will wax old as doth a garment and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up. So the earth is, in a sense, getting tired. It's getting weary and things are kind of starting to get shaken up a bit and it's, it's wearing out. That was predicted. And so when we hear these things and see them, let's not be troubled and become all fearful because we know that these things are a sign of his coming and that we should in patience wait for his coming. In your patience possess ye your souls. Now, as things get worse and worse, you would think by reasoning that men would start to wake up, right? Isn't that how it's supposed to work? You, get, you have these signs and you, you, know, you should be alert. It takes us back to our text passage there that ye are the children of light. Ye are the children of the day. Ye are not in darkness. You're not in night. Neither, and we should not sleep as those who sleep in the night. On these matters, we should be awake and discerning. I'd like to take you to a portion in Revelation chapter 6 and 7.
in Revelation 6, verse 8. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Now, I would read this fairly literally in the sense that what he's telling us here about power over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, hunger, and death, that's going to be reality. Whether we will see a horse, I'm not, I'm not so sure that we will see a horse, that being perhaps the figure and the passage, but the effect on the earth, I believe, should be taken very seriously here. The fourth part of the earth is a very significant part of mankind and would be, we use the term earth-changing or life-changing. But let's look over in chapter 7, verse 17. I'm sorry, not chapter 7, it was uh, chapter 9, verse 17. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. Now this seems very strange because... We can't quite envision or picture exactly what this looks like. It seems to be something we have never seen before. And I'm not sure that I can describe to you exactly what it all means. However, let's note what it says here, that by these three was the third part of men killed. If that's one-third of the planet... That's a pretty enormous, catastrophic change. Now it does uh, say earlier that, I believe it was, that there, it, would not, um, it would not hurt those who have the seal of God in their forehead. But in verse 20 it says, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. 
Now it tells me that this is in a time period where there could be repentance. But they're not repenting. And you think to yourself, how could it be? How could something so catastrophic not get their attention and cause them to turn to God? Is it possible that we will see, if we are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, that we would see one-third of mankind killed? And yet people not repenting? It would seem to me that we should be at least prepared that this is a possibility. Because as I look at the rest of Scripture... It seems to me that the time of repentance when men could repent is prior to the coming and actual return of the Lord. Because after that point in time, when the door is shut, there's no more entering in. And then just a fearful looking for of judgment. What I'd like to emphasize out of this passage is that even though things are catastrophic and just completely out of out of our normal experience men still won't repent and I think it will be just like it was in the days of Noah they ate, they drank, they planted and builded There'll be places where all that keeps right on going. And in spite of these extreme things and men's hearts failing them for fear, for looking at those things that are coming, yet many will not repent. So the picture I get is that as we get close to the end, these birth pangs getting stronger and stronger, and we begin to see things we've never seen before, distresses, plagues, and things, and yet men's hearts won't be softened. They will just continue. And you can see that already coming to pass as they talk about climate change and that we need to do something. We need to prepare. We need to put a tax on the carbon. And we need to, uh, you know, turn off your toaster. Don't drive your car so much because these are polluting the earth. Well, you know, there's a good bit of hypocrisy, whether it's willful or just uh, negligent, as they don't consider, uh, for example, if we were to actually consider what mankind is doing, I read some statistics that the container ships that go across the ocean carrying these, you know, maybe a thousand or twenty thousand containers as they transport goods across the ocean, that you would take six of these ships in a year's time. They would consume as much fuel as the entire automobile fleet in the United States in a year's time. Just six of those ships 
And there are hundreds of them going across the ocean to and from around the world. Now, will men really change their consumerism and their habits, their smartphones that get shipped over from China and their, and their, um, you know, their exercise bikes and all, you know, and on and on it goes? Are they really going to give up that to save the planet? No, they want you to stop driving your car or turn off your toaster and such like, but the things that really make a difference, they don't want to touch. Another example could be that of rockets launching satellites into space. And many nations are doing that. The United States probably in the lead, but Russia does it, China does it, and a handful of other nations. And when they launch those heavy rockets through the atmosphere, they are spewing many, many times the amount of, of pollutions that the factories and so on are generating. Uh, but will they stop putting satellites in space? I doubt it. And the war machines and all the bombs and missiles, etc., and the armaments and the ships and the planes and the fuels and pollutions that are spewed out from the entire range of military armament is just enormous. But will they actually stop that? Probably not until the Lord comes back because they hate one another and they are at war and they're fearful of one another and they, they are filled with lust and envy and strife and therefore they won't give up their weapons of war but they do want you to stop driving your car and turn off your toaster so that you save the planet. So don't be concerned about their alarmism about climate change. Just understand that the climate is changing and it's going to get worse. We were told it would and it's a sign of his coming. It's a sign that it's near at hand. I guess we're timeless this morning. I don't know. I don't know where we're at. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, Quickly, yet one more thing. In this is back in Matthew. Matthew twenty-four, verse thirty-two. One of the signs of his coming. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. 
Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Now there's been a lot of debate among scholars and students of the scripture as to what this might mean. And I'll give you what I what my understanding is. That when he talks about the parable of the fig tree, he's referring to the nation of Israel. And there are several passages. There's uh, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus gave the parable of the barren fig tree, where Jesus, or I'm sorry, the it was the parable of the fig tree where the the owner of the vineyard came by and he had a fig tree there, and it wasn't bearing any fruit. And he says, "I've come these three years." to find fruit, and I find none. Why doth it come to the ground? Cut it down. And the gardener said, let me dung about for a year and tend it, and then if it doesn't bear fruit, then cut it down. And so he said, okay, we'll let it, you can do that. And that seems a clear picture of the fact that Jesus in his earthly ministry was there for three and a half years. And for three years he sought fruit on the fig tree of Israel. And he found none. And so he said, cut it off. And the gardener asked for a little more time. And it's a picture of Christ actually giving his life for the nation of Israel. If you turn to Romans, you find that because of unbelief, they were cut off. And the Gentiles were grafted in. So that fig tree did not bear fruit like it was supposed to. There's also in the prophet Joel, it talks about Israel as a fig tree. It talks about a nation coming against Israel, and he says, they have barked my fig tree, as in removed the bark and made it bare. So there are multiple places in scripture where the fig tree represents Israel. And so he says, learn a parable of the fig tree when his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. And it seems a picture of the nation of Israel springing forth after having been dormant for 2,000 years they spring forth as a nation and are presently today the nation of Israel. That took place in 1948. And if a generation is 70 years at its maximum and perhaps 80 years if by reason of strength, the 70-year mark was in uh, 2018, but we've not yet reached the 80-year mark. But he says very specifically, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And as I mentioned earlier, there's been a lot of debate among students and scholars as to exactly what it means. When does this period start? What is a generation? How does this apply? But know this, 
that it was prophesied that Israel in the end times would come back to their land and would become a nation once again. And we've seen that come to pass. So just the fact that Israel is a nation back again in their own land and have made the land fruitful is a clear sign of the Lord's soon return. He says here, know that it is near even at the doors. So in a sense, that has been true ever since Israel became a nation in 1948. But that's what would persuade me that it's not a hundred years away yet of the Lord's return. It's probably much nearer, and it's certainly nearer than when we first believed, as he says. But here's a very interesting word yet at the end here in verse 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. That means that every word of the Lord is going to be fulfilled just like he said it will. We may not understand it all, but we should be applying our hearts to understand and to be watchful and to be waiting for our Lord's return. In the meantime, our patience should give us that stability to see us through whatever whatever comes. In your patience possess ye your souls. And just know that every word will be fulfilled. May the Lord bless you.